Those of you who have been Christians for a while, you've probably had at least a few opportunities to present the gospel to someone else. And some of you, uh, like myself, like to use the bridge analogy. The bridge analogy is something simple. You can write out on a napkin, right? You walk through a passage uh, that talks about uh, where we are before God and where God is and that there's a large gap between us, right? So on one side of the napkin, you draw a cliff and a lonely dude that can't cross the cliff. And then on the other cliff, opposite facing, you have God. And in between them, you have an abyss, a chasm, a gap, right? Some of you are probably familiar with that. And they say, Jesus came and died on the cross, and then you draw the cross in between. And how does man get to God? By walking across the bridge that Christ provided in the cross. Well, it's a nice, it's a nice analogy. It's easy to write out. It's uh, easy to remember. Uh, you can use a napkin. You can use your hand. You can just do charades right it's easy the problem with illustrations and i don't have a problem with that i'm saying don't use that because i use it all the time and i encourage christians to use it it's good but the problem with any analogy and any illustrations it never captures everything right it captures angles it captures aspects but never gives the whole thing and what that particular analogy misses It nails the fact that there's a gap between us and God, and that's why we need Christmas. Christmas is necessary because there's a gap between us and God, and that gap needed to be closed for us to get to God. That's why Christ needed to come. But it wasn't just a gap where God is on one side going, oh, there's a gap. Oh. And then man is on the other side going, oh, there's a gap. I wish I could be over there. But, oh, I'm here. But that is not the picture that the Bible draws. What the Bible says is that, yes, there's a gap, but it's a gap of enmity. That's a good old word. Enmity. Sounds like the word enemy because they have similar roots. Enmity isn't just a gap. You're over there and I'm over here and I wish we can get together. Enmity is, you're over there, and I'm glad, because I hate you. That's enmity. There's hostility between God and us. It wasn't just a gap of distance. Like, we're so far from God. He's up in some other galaxy, and here we are on this little spinning planet, and we just can't get to him. We don't have the technology to physically get to him. It's not a physical gap that separates us. But it's enmity. And we miss this oftentimes. Even at McDonald's when we're drawing that gospel out on a napkin. We miss this fact. When we miss this fact, we miss the weight of Christmas. I want to show you before we get to Colossians 1, which is our verse for today. I want to show you a couple passages that might be familiar to you. James 4.4. And there were so many to choose from. These are just the two that I chose. Here's James writing. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is picking up on Jesus' teaching. You're with me or against me. There's not a middle ground. 
There's not people that are with God and then people that, are, that hate God and then people that they don't hate God, they wish they could be with God, but they just, they're not with God. There's no such thing. There's people that are with God and people that hate God. Now, the problem is we think, I can maybe only think of a couple people that I've ever heard actually say, I hate God. Somebody was taken from them. They're in pain, and they shake their fists at the sky. But everybody else, he doesn't hate God. He's just not a Christian. No, he hates God. Before you came to Christ, you hated God. You may not have said that. You may not have written it in your journal, I hate God. You may not have verbally, explicitly said it. But your position before God was one of enmity, and you were shaking your fist at God. Because he says do this, and you don't want to. He says don't do that, and you said, but I want to. And in that sense, we hated God. That's what alienated us from God. That's why the gap exists, because of enmity. Let's look at another one. John 3. We all love John 3.16. Right? 20 verses later, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So what Jesus is saying, it's not just that man is hostile toward God. It's that God is hostile toward sinful man. God is hostile. He has wrath. And it's appropriate. And it's toward sinful man. This, this Jesus in John 3, this is the same conversation he's having with Nicodemus about being born again. Jesus, he wants Nicodemus to be born again. And it looks like from the text that Nicodemus is coming along. He's getting it. But Jesus makes it really clear. There's not a third category. If there's a gap between someone and God, it's a gap of enmity. It's me versus God. My way versus his way. And this is another way of saying, guys, there's no one, there is no one in hell going, oh, I missed my opportunity to be with him. He's so awesome. No. They still hate God there. Why do I start off a Christmas sermon with that? Because this is why we lose Christmas, guys. Christmas isn't about gifts. I know we say that all the time. But we go, Christmas is really about, how do you fill in the blank? Christmas is about this gap that we have between us and God, and it's not a store that sells medium-priced clothes in the mall. The gap between us and God is one of enmity, hostility, and wrath. And so we come and we gather because we celebrate what God has done to fix that problem. And it's not one of many problems that we have. It is the ultimate problem. And every problem you have in your life, you can trace it back down to the ultimate problem of the gap and the distance between us and God. We need that gap closed, and we can't do it. It would take God himself to do it. And the only way to bridge the gap between God and man is to send the God-man himself. To see that, we're going to look at Colossians 1. So please turn there. Colossians chapter 1. 
This is actually our third week looking at this passage. Call it the hymn, a hymn passage, a hymn of Christ. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up. We'll, we'll bring you one. Okay, a couple on this side, one over there. Colossians chapter 1. We're focusing on the last two verses of this hymn, but we're starting at verse 15. It's, the hymn is verse 15 to 20. And Paul wants to tell them how God wants them to live their lives and, and how God wants to affect their church, but he can't get there until he gets their understanding of Christ, who he is and what he's done first. Verse 15, speaking of the Son, the beloved Son from verse 13. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. There's so much there. We could probably do more than three weeks in it. We won't. But I want to turn our attention to the last two verses in that passage, 19 and 20. When it says that, For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What he's saying is, God didn't have to do it, it pleased him to do it. He wasn't obligated to do it, he chose to do it. He could have not done it, but he elected to do it. And, and that's an important point to strike. I still talk with Christians today, when I ask them, did God have to do it? And sometimes I get mixed answers. Whether God was obligated to do it. Biting his nails like, oh, they're on the gap. I have to do it. He didn't have to. He could have secured glory for himself in another way. God is also glorified in justice. And justice would have been to not cross the gap. Justice would have been to leave you over there. And in that justice, God would have been right. And in his rightness, he would receive glory for that. So he didn't have to, he wasn't obligated to, but he chose to. Here's another thing that I think is revealed by this passage when it says God was pleased to dwell as the God-man Jesus. It means that it didn't just happen. You know, it was an intentional thought that he had for this to happen. Why do I say this? Because throughout the history of the world, mythologies have this idea of the demigod, right? They'll tell you, when you go to college, they'll tell you, Jesus, that's not original. That's not original. Every religion has a demigod. A deity comes down, let's say Zeus. He comes down, he gets together with a woman of his choice and has a baby, like Perseus. And then Perseus, he's not fully God, but he's not all the way man. He's half and half. That's why he can kill Medusa and fight the Kraken, right? 
all those kind of things. So everybody has demigods, and isn't that what happened? God overshadowed Mary and had a half and half. Half God, half baby, half child, half Mary, half God. Everybody does it. The Greeks had that, the Romans had that, Hindus have that, everybody has that. So what's, what's the difference? Well, one of the differences is that that is not what this is saying, that he's half God. Instead, it's saying that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not half, fully God. Because otherwise the mission wouldn't be effective. When you read the stories of these Greek myths of demigods, they still needed Zeus, right? He'd get stuck and Zeus, Zeus has to hook him up with weapons and he's got to help him, you know, because he's, he's not fully God. Hercules running around, you know, these kind of guys where they're, they're men, but they're, they're powerful, they're heroes, they're like superheroes, but each of them have their own kryptonite, their own weaknesses, you know, they, they need help from the gods because they're not actual God. But, but this is saying the fullness of God dwelled in Christ, fully God in Christ. It's kind of like if you grew up on a particular kind of food, and you know the authentic taste to this recipe. And you go to a restaurant somewhere, and they claim to have the best sauce or the best hot dog or the best whatever. We ran into this in Colorado. Chicago's best hot dog. Hey, let's go in and get a hot dog. And then it was nasty, right? It was nasty. And I bet there's a chef back there going, eh, same thing, right? Eh, celery, salt, pepper, whatever, you know? Sport peppers, no sport peppers, eh. Who cares if there's a poppy seed on the bun? A bun is a bun, eh. Same thing, right? This is what we're hearing from the atheists that'll say Jesus is just another myth. He's just another demigod. Jesus, Perseus, eh. Same thing. That's someone who hasn't tasted the real thing. When I look at the Greek mythology and stuff, I'm like, has nothing to do with Jesus. That has nothing to do with Jesus. Just like when we go to Colorado to have a Chicago-style hot dog and go, this has nothing to do with Chicago-style hot dog. There's nothing like it. doesn't even look like it. You know that because you've spent time with the real thing. And so what Paul is getting at here, he knows about the Greek myths. This, those predate the Colossians. The Colossians know about those myths. Now he's saying this isn't just one of those. He's saying the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the God-man, Jesus Christ. It didn't happen on accident. It didn't happen because God was walking around and he's like, oh, Mary. No, he chose it. He elected to do it. It was God uh, initiating a mission to close this gap. And so God is fully God and Christ, and he dwelled among us in Christ. The Old Testament imagery here, if you remember the tent that they would set up, you know, and the priest would go into the tent, this is where you would commune with God. This is where you had access to God. This was a sort of attempt to close the gap a little bit, but God wasn't really in a tent, you know. It was, it was symbolic, but God now doesn't dwell in a tent or in a temple. He dwells in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Everything you need to know about God is in Christ, and so it's... It's not a half job. It's not partial, partially effective. It's fully effective because he's fully 
God, and he's also fully man. Then verse 20 says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Pause there a second. If it was a man who wanted to reconcile, that'd be a problem. The reason why he spends time in verse 19 to make sure that you understand that he's God, and not just 19, right? 15 through 19, telling you Christ isn't just a dude. He created everything. You're here because Christ spoke you into existence. He was the word that actuated your creation. He is God. So he spends all these verses saying that. Why? To make verse 20 a reality. Because if God doesn't reconcile us, we don't get reconciled. Verse 20. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus reigns over all creation, but there's something wrong with creation, right? Because there's that gap. And so he doesn't reign over it in precisely the way that he wants to. So he has to close this gap so that he can establish his reign the way he wants to establish it. And he chooses to do it in this way, by reconciling his creation to himself. It's amazing that it says reconcile all things. He's still talking cosmically and not just about people, but everything. You remember in Romans 8, Paul says that creation itself is under bondage of decay and creation itself is longing for Christ's return. So this is talking about the reconciliation of everything that was damaged by sin in the garden. Why we have thorns and why there's viruses. You know, why there's uh, animals with sharp teeth that want to eat you wasn't supposed to be that way it's that way now but all of that creation is longing for a restored order where they're not killing each other and man is not prey by walking in the woods and those kinds of things but he does have a particular focus on people because it says to reconcile him to to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace And to be sure, he's not thinking mainly about peace between him and grizzly bears or between him and sharks. But it's peace between hostile man and himself. So Christ's mission pleased him to reconcile to himself all things, including hostile man to himself. I want to just put this out there. It's important because some people have used this verse to say everybody in the end gets saved. Everybody in the end gets saved. That's called universalism. Everyone ever created in the universe ends up getting saved because look, it says it right there. He's going to reconcile to himself all things. Problem with that is it conflicts with the rest of the Bible. All that was taught about the reality of hell. And in fact, no one taught more about hell than Jesus himself. Most of what we know about hell is straight from Jesus' words. It conflicts with that. It conflicts with Colossians. In chapter 2, verse 15, if you drop your eyes down to that verse, he says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What about those beings? What about the rulers? What about the authorities and the spiritual ones, the demons that are out to thwart keep that gap 
and thwart this reconciliation plan. Does God reconcile them to himself? They're in the created order. He's over them. But no, it says right there, no, he, he's not reconciled. The reconciliation is him triumphing over them. They're out. <coughs> then you see a verse like verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18, where Paul says, hey, let no one disqualify you. When you buy into false teaching, you buy into a false gospel, and you forsake the real gospel, you get disqualified. Disqualified from what? The gospel plan. From reconciliation. In other words, there's qualified people and disqualified people. Make sure you're in the qualified bunch. Because not everyone makes it. This is so clear throughout the whole Bible, it is impossible to think that Paul, in chapter 1, Verse 20 means that everyone gets saved. No. He means that all in the creation order gets reconciled to him. Not every single person. But man, creation, the animal kingdom, the oceans, the mountains, everything gets reconciled to him. Now within that everything, there's a particular group of people that respond to him in faith. Faith in what he did on the cross. Where am I getting that from? Well, verse 20. How does Christ make peace? Well, by his blood. By the blood of his cross. You might be thinking, why are we taking, why are we taking communion on Christmas morning? Because the whole point of Jesus becoming flesh is so that he can be killed in the flesh. He can't take a, a physical death for you if he's not physical first. Well, why didn't he just come? as a 33-year-old, and just get killed immediately. Because first he needed to live the perfect life that we couldn't live. And he can't do that unless he's a human himself. And so the whole reason why there's a baby is because there's a cross. And to get to the cross, he had to be a baby first. And to separate the two is to miss the point. He reconciles to himself all things, by making peace by the blood of his cross. Blood in the Bible represents life, so his life is spilled. His life is spilled so that our lives don't have to be spilled. And so many have called this a substitutionary atonement, right? I should have been the one to die. He dies in my place. He lived in my place because my life has deserved sin. The sin of my life deserves death. Christ's life deserves life. And so we get our accounts swapped. Like your bad credit gets put on Christ, and Christ's perfect score, his perfect FICO score, gets put on your account. It's not fair, but that's the transaction. He gets what we deserve, and we get what he deserved. That's why the cross. And that's how reconciliation is made. Peace was the goal the entire time. And the only way that God could accomplish that is through the God-man, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Well, I wasn't doing evil deeds. I just wasn't a Christian yet. No, you were doing evil deeds. This is what has to get through to us. We were hostile in mind. We were not just kind of separated. We were alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds, in verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, not the way verse 21 looks, but different, holy and blameless, above reproach before him. 
So the mission of the nativity scene is the same mission of the cross, right? I started this service off by thanking you guys for being here, and I meant that. And I want to be careful how I'm saying what I'm about to say. I don't want us to look around and see who's not here and judge why they're not here when we don't know. Some people are out of town, some people, they couldn't make it, some people are sick or whatever. But you've seen it on Facebook, right? You've, you've probably had these conversations at Starbucks or with friends that go to other churches that closed on Christmas. And maybe those conversations kind of circle around and you ask why and they say, well, because the pastors wanted a day off or, uh, you know, we want to respect the pastor's families. One article was written by a PK, a pastor's kid, and he says, man, I'm so glad my church is closed on Christmas because when I was growing up, Every time Christmas fell on Sunday, the church stole Christmas from me. That's what he said. Then there's likes on Facebook, people hitting the little thumbs up. Yeah, stop stealing church from PKs. I have, I just, I have to wonder if they get what Christmas is about. If you were literally dangling off the edge of a cliff and somebody that you hated your whole life, you called them names, they lost their job because of you, okay? Uh, their marriage broke up because of you, you were spreading lies. You did these evil things to do everything to hurt them. And they saw you dangling in the cliff and they helped you get up and they slipped and they fell and that was the only way they were able to help you get up. How would you honor that person? I mean, this is what we're celebrating. An eternal problem that we have of separation from God, enduring God's wrath rightly. We may not feel like it's right, but it's right. It is right for God's wrath to be placed on you. He should have wrath toward us forever. And instead, he rescued us. Now, to skip that, because we want to sleep in or eat pancakes or open present after present, you know, after present, doesn't make sense. I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, <laughs> right? But what I want to do, what I want to commend to you is as we communicate to others the importance, the importance of Christmas, okay? We don't do it in a judgy way. You know, we don't do it like, where were you on Christmas morning? Ah, I was at church, you know. But to, but to communicate what church is. This is my family. We're blood brothers and sisters in Christ. I have physical family that I'll never see again. Forever. It pains me to say it. But this is family, I'll see you forever. We'll worship Christ forever. A thousand years from now, we're not going to remember what was the third package underneath the tree behind the, behind the heat grate. I'm not going to remember that. But we're going to be worshiping the Lamb. That's what Christmas is. Christmas is the gift of Christ, not so that 
we can have better lives, you know, or so that we can have a nice holiday. So we can live instead of die. That's why we're having communion. 